Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Today we are joined by Dr. Josh Shamel. Dr. Shamel is a urology resident in Albany, New York. He graduated medical school from the University of South Carolina. He has published several research articles on various topics of medicine and is on track to be a part of the next generation of high caliber urologists. Dr. Shamel, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what we want to learn about today is the process of becoming a urologist, what goes on during training, and what our listeners can learn about the direction of ED and sexual dysfunction treatment in the future. So, Dr. Shamwell, residency takes place after four years of medical school, and then the residency is another five years. That is a very long time. Can you give us a glimpse into what this experience and what this process is like. It's a crazy process, um, you know, going through four years of college and working your butt off there, um, studying really hard to get, you know, for the MCAT, doing all the extracurriculars and shadowing and going through medical school interviews, I thought was the hardest part of everything. But obviously, med school is a whole, whole new beast. Um, you have to take so many tests of which they're all very important. It all kind of comes down to at least when I was in med school, taking step one, which is the first of the U.S. board exams. Um, And that one day kind of determines a lot about your future. And so um, I've actually had a very long kind of windy road to get to urology, um, especially through med school. So I ended up not doing as well on step one as I wanted to. um, And that ultimately led in me not uh, being able to match um, in fourth year medical school. So I actually, I had to soap into a general surgery uh, prelim intern year out in Las Vegas with Valley Health System. Luckily through there, uh, I got connected with some great urologists, uh, Dr. Michael Verney, Dr. Sheldon Friedman, and had a lot of help with my program director, Dr. Saju Joseph, uh, while I was there. Um, unfortunately didn't match again into urology when I, uh, when I applied while I was in an intern. And so I ended up in, uh, what I thought was a long-term research position with Dr. Larry Lipschultz out at Baylor college of medicine in Houston. Um, he was a fantastic mentor. And then, uh, as luck would have it, a spot opened up at Albany medical center. And, uh, I was able to, uh, with his guidance kind of land a spot here. Uh, you know, shout out to Dr. Barry Kogan for taking a shot on me. And I started in September of, uh, this past year and I've been loving it ever since. So yeah, it's so, it's so great to hear. And I w- want to hear a couple more details about the actual, what actually goes on in the residency. But I also know that, um, you know, many people in, in, you know, various specialties in medicine are very passionate about getting there and it's very, very challenging process. I want to make sure our listeners understand that this is not, you know, in any way, like if it's very hard to match, there's only so many spots that open up every year in the country, certainly for urology. I know that 
if I'm not mistaken, there's a shortage of urologists in the country, generally speaking, and yet there's just not enough spots <laughs> that open up for uh, the amount of applicants. So I just want our listeners to understand that it's a very challenging process. It's hard to get through four years of college, forget the MCATs, getting into medical school, getting through medical school, and uh, then matching with uh, you know the type of a program or residency that you want to be in. So um, I'm glad that your passions have led you all the way through. I take it that you were trying to get into urology, if yes, sir. I'm going to say it correctly. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that you're there. So you're two years in. What actually goes on in a residency? So it depends on kind of what rotation you're on. You got some rotations that are nose to the grindstone. You're going to work yourself to the bone, get that full 80 hours a week. But you learn so much while you're doing it. Um, my first couple of rotations here at Albany Med were on essentially what is called the floor team. Um, so, you know, any consults that come in, any patients that are admitted uh, after surgery, you know, you are responsible for running their care day to day. You're responsible for communicating kind of the patient's daily labs, their, how they did overnight, their questions and concerns. Um, you're responsible for communicating to the rest of the team, to the attending, and kind of figuring out how to develop a nice, concise way of communicating all that information in one. I've been lucky. I've actually been on a, a rotation for the past three months, which has allowed me to work at the Albany VA, which is right across the street from Albany Med, and also be able to do a little bit of basic science research as well. So um, it's been a little bit of a, a welcome change of pace, to be honest, um, not quite hitting the 80 hours a week that you know residents are so accustomed to hitting. Um, but it's provided a lot of, you know, uh, A, a change of scenery, but a whole new different patient population with way more different issues, a lot more clinic time, which has been a very good because I've been able to see a lot of erectile dysfunction in the clinic and being able to help veterans kind of with that issue as they go forward. Yeah, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be coming around to the issue of erectile dysfunction as per the name of this podcast, but certainly I want to um, you know get a little bit more of a glimpse into this. Now, one of the things that you mentioned was the importance of, of learning how to be concise when you're delivering that. And I'm sure many of our listeners uh, can appreciate that that, or maybe they don't appreciate it so much because many urologists around the country are on very short windows when they are initially seeing patients, and uh, being concise is is a skill that actually develops probably in residency about how to kind of get to the bottom of what's happening at least preliminary and be able to deliver that message not just to the team but also to the patients. So um, there's a lot that goes on in the residency beyond just learning about uh, these conditions in a really in depth way. Uh, but also how to deliver that information in a concise and clear message to the people around you and to the patients. Um, now, what are some of the major medical conditions that are subsumed under urology? Obviously, erectile dysfunction is going to be one of them, along with other uh, sexual medicine issues. But what are some of the other areas that that um, maybe are less known or are less thought of as they relate to urology? So kidney stones is one of the, you know, the pillars of urology. We have a whole special uh, subspecialty dedicated to it called endourology um, that allows for us to kind of use cameras to go in and kind of break stones apart via lasers and everything like that. Um, urinary symptoms. So like benign prostate hyperplasia, um, urinary incontinence, uh, overactive bladder. Um, those are again, bread and butter for us. Um, we deal with that almost on a daily basis, um, especially getting men on Flomax and finasteride. And you, know, you 
I've told plenty of patients, you don't know what you have until you miss it. And so when I have patients coming in saying, I'm getting up and going to the bathroom at night five times, this is just disrupting my sleep. I can't get any rest or, you know, I just, you know, I spend too much time in the bathroom. And when I, you know, think I'm done, I have to go immediately back because I feel like I haven't fully emptied. Like those symptoms really affect your quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's imperative that you answer those. Um, kidney cancer, bladder cancer um, are also huge elements of what we do. We've got some great urologists here. Dr. Neon is one of them um, who is, you know, pioneering uh, ways into treat bladder cancer going forward. Um, we deal with a lot of pediatric urology as well. Um, so congenital malformations are very common. Um, testicular torsion, hydrocele's. We deal with a lot of female urology as well. Um, I had the privilege of being in the OR today, dealing with uh, mid-urethral slings and pro- posterior prolapses uh, for women today. Um, outside of that, uh, the part that interests me the most is the men's health though. So definitely erectile dysfunction, Peroni's disease, penile fractures, kind of all that stuff. But I've I've really been trying to include kind of a holistic approach to men's health when I see um, my VA patients in clinic. So I like to also. I'm going to ask a little bit more about that. Yes. I'm going to get, I want to get a little bit more into that because I think one of the points of curiosity for me is going to be about that holistic approach and how that kind of plays out at a residency level. Um, So before we get to that though, what, what portion of, uh, your residency, because I know each one is structured differently depending on where you are, what hospital system, but what portion of residency is dedicated to sexual medicine? So we have entire uh, month-long rotations dedicated to kind of female and male medicine. Um, in our specific residency, those those rotations that are entirely geared towards that happen in about your third and fourth year. Um, although that's not to say you don't deal with it first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. Um, part of my overnight calls have been dealing with priapisms. Um, and then, like I said, cl- in clinic at the VA, you know, uh, almost every guy who comes in has some complaint of erectile dysfunction. So you get a lot of it day to day, but it's, you know, you do get some very specialized experience with it as well. You obviously see patients and you see a fair amount of erectile dysfunction at this point. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Okay. What are some of the questions that you ask an ED patient? So a man comes in, I'm not even going to give him a particular age, but he says, doc, I'm having, I'm having erection problems. We're having ED. Where do things go from there? Erectile dysfunction has so many different components that flow into it. So you can have psychological factors kind of rolling into it, especially at the VA. There's a, a large amount of men who have experienced kind of sexual assault in the military. And so there is some, you know, mental components with this um, exercise diet is huge. Um, a lot of the research coming out now is that we can hopefully avoid some of these medications and treatments down the line if we can address kind of, you know, these baseline components of health. So getting, you know, getting men up and moving at least 30 minutes a day doesn't really matter what it is. Just get up and move. Try to eat more fruits and vegetables like that's one of the first questions that you should be asking someone is, how are you living your life in a day-to-day fashion? Alcohol, smoking are also things that we take into account because those negatively impact a a man's ability to maintain an erection hard enough for penetration. Um, And then, you know, we start looking at 
you know, possible genetic causes, vascular disease, diabetes is a, a common cause. If you've had heart issues, that also contributes. So you really have to take, like you said, a, a look at the whole patient and you can't just focus on one or two things because you may miss something that would really help your diagnosis and make it easier for the patient to get the sexual satisfaction that they need in life. Yeah. And one of the things I appreciate about what you're saying is that there's a, I think there's a little bit of a misnomer out there that, well, what's the difference? The doctor's just going to give me uh, Viagra anyways. So I might as well, you know, go get it from a, an online pharmacy, or I might as well go get it from my primary care physician. And, you know, I think that there's a lot that goes into a diagnosis of erectile dysfunction, whether there's psychological components, but also lifestyle, but there's so many uh, different parts of the, the body and the circulatory system that could be at play, that really having a proper workup really could be the benefit of uh, a lot of these men. Now, one of the things that I, I kind of picked up on, and maybe I wasn't hearing correctly, but some of the lifestyle components are a lot about preventative. Getting men to do things before these conditions develop could be a huge thing. But going back to another point that you were making earlier is that you don't know what you're missing until it's gone. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot, there, there's not enough of an emphasis on preventative. There's not enough of an emphasis on this is like something that if you don't take care of it, you're going to be putting it at risk. Obviously, there's always going to be outliers who doesn't matter what they do, what they eat, it, it, they're going to, their bodies are going to perform. But for most men, that's not the case. Unfortunately, I don't think there's enough education out there because nobody's paying attention until there's a problem. Yeah. And a lot of times we're playing catch up. So I think like that's an important point that uh, I would like our listeners to take in that these preventative efforts and even once the, once there's been an onset of ED, making these lifestyle changes can still make a big difference. It really can help in the turnaround process. Absolutely. Dr. Shamal, how are urology residents educated about the psychological factors and the psychological impact of sexual dysfunction? Yeah, no, that that's a, you know, education is everything. And with our very busy schedules, it's it's hard to be able to fit as many aspects of urology in as possible. And so um, we're very fortunate. Dr. Kogan here at Albany Med is great about you do having us do grand rounds. And so we have guest speakers come in who have been able to kind of speak into that for us and give us a little bit of a an extra uh, bonus education, if you will, on, um, you know, some of these factors that we wouldn't normally wouldn't normally look at. To be honest, uh, you know, to get a lot of the other information, you're kind of relying on mentors in the field um, and attendings that you work with while you're here. Um, I've been very fortunate to be able to work with Dr. Welliver, who's our men's health specialist here, who, you know, um, I kind of want to become him when I'm older. Um, so I, I've been trying to glean as much information from him as I can. And then a lot of it is, you know, kind of self-study. So looking at what the literature is coming out now, um, especially with, you know, research looking into COVID possibly affecting erectile dysfunction. Um, but, you know, looking at, you know, obviously the textbooks and as much information as possible. Honestly, Twitter has been a great resource. You have urologists over in Oregon, like Ashley Winter, who are, you know, consistently putting information out there, especially new information like covid um, and just trying to educate not only the urology residents and the urology attendings who follow her on Twitter, but she's also trying to reach a larger audience. She does a very good job at making it reachable for, you know, the kind of, you know, everyday patients to be able to kind of see what she's posting and get a little bit of information from that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an overwhelming condition from a certain, it's, it's really difficult to get a full comprehensive picture because the mind's involved, the body's involved. I mean, there's so many moving parts 
Um, and, and I get that, that with there being multiple conditions within sexual medicine, and then there are multiple branches of urology to really get down into the weeds is really tough. The other thing that our patients should be aware of is that when I, when I work with men who are struggling with ED, I get hours of interaction uh, to really kind of like get in there and look at a lot of the psychological factors. I have that luxury of time. Whereas many urologists, whether they're in the residency or they are in clinic, just don't have that same amount of time. And I don't have to go through all the medical questions. I rely on my uh, urology and medical counterparts to really take care of that. So I recognize that it's a lot and it's a lot of factors to be uh, exploring and asking about. But big picture, is there like a screening that's done to ask about uh, questions that might pertain to that anxiety, depression, uh, relationship issues? Um, is there a certain screen that um, residents use when looking at just, again, very, very big picture, but looking at whether there are psychological components that may be at play? So I would need to relook at some of the questionnaires that we use. And so one of the ways that we try to, you know, condense as much information as possible into a 15 minute visit is by having the patients do the, you know, the questionnaires that are, you know, how do you feel like the quality the quality is of your erection? Is it able to, you know, achieve penetration with this? Are you satisfied? Are you able to achieve orgasm? That's probably the best tool that urologists have to kind of answer all the questions that we may not have time for. But I, in having looked at those questionnaires before in the past, they aren't addressing things like, um, you know, so our psychosocial factors and everything like that, which are going to play a role. And so that is something I think that urologists need to kind of start incorporating as we move forward is that we do need to make sure that we're asking these questions on our questionnaires or at the very least bringing them up in the office when the patient's actually there in front of us. Yeah. And, 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 you know, look, I, I, I recognize the challenge of like, it's so multifactorial. And um, a lot of times if, 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 that's not your area of expertise. And you ask that question, the patient says, well, yeah, I've been struggling with anxiety about this for, for, you know, four years. Like what's the follow-up where, like, where, like, where does, where does a urologist go with that? Which I recognize is, is, is not the training per se. So I also, I, I get that it's hard to open up some of these questions, but just want our, our, our listeners to kind of understand a little bit more about what that screening looks like. Some of the challenges that these urologists face um, you know, with, with having to try to be as helpful and impactful as possible in a limited amount of time. Now, obviously one of the things that I work with on the mental, on the mental health and the psychological side, um, as it pertains to sexual dysfunction is the distress that these conditions cause in your work so far in seeing these patients, do you see that with conditions pertaining to sexuality, sexual dysfunction in particular, does that carry a unique distress that these patients are describing or coming in with, or it's apparent? Absolutely. Um, it's kind of uh, overall, it's kind of based on the patient and based on their circumstances. So I, I've had a couple patients who they've definitely been distressed by this, but it's been for reasons such as a partner may have a life-threatening disease and they may not have much time left with them. And int sexual intimacy is one of the things that helps them connect. Or, um, you know, prostate cancer is so prevalent in men that, you know, when you, sometimes the, the cure is worse than the disease. And so, you know, as far, you, as, far as erections are concerned. Absolutely. Yes. Um, if <laughs> I, don't, you, I don't want men to get the impression that they should not treat prostate cancer. <laughs> 
Yes. For sure. Um, but one of the side effects of having a prostatectomy done is you take out some of those nerves that are responsible for controlling right. erections. And so I, one of the things I've had at the VA is a lot of patients who have had prostate cancer and they're grateful for the treatment and they're glad they got it, but they, they have to suffer with some erectile dysfunction afterwards. And actually one of the best things I've seen at the VA is that these men have that, you know, brotherhood of being in the military they're very open and honest with each other. And so I haven't really seen that in the civilian population as well as in the military, but they, the men in the military are very good about going into groups and talking about this. One of the uh, patients who I had, who had prostate cancer, um, gave me a packet of information that had been shared with his prostate cancer support group. And it was all about, you know, survive, you know, how to achieve sexual intimacy after you had received a prostatectomy. And so it involves, you know, partners getting creative sometimes. And so one of the things I've talked to patients before is, you know, talking about oral stimulation or the use of sex toys. But obviously, I want to make sure that they're able to kind of achieve the erections that they want. And so that allows us to engage in a conversation of, you know, which modality would be the best for you. Um, but it is something I wish men were a little bit more comfortable talking about with each other because, you know there's strength in numbers. And so if you are able to talk to someone who says, oh, I'm glad you mentioned that I have that as well. Like, this is how I've dealt with it from, you know, a health standpoint, but also this is how I've dealt with the anxiety and kind of the mental strain and how my partner and I are dealing with this. I feel like that would be much more beneficial if we could get these conversations started. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely you know we're we're you know with the podcast we're trying to take again our little our little sliver of what we can do to to um, help normalize just how common this is. But I think one of the things you're touching on is just there's a pervasive sense of shame, um, certainly in the general population when it comes to these conditions, even if they do stem from a a medical condition or a medical surgery, uh, people do not like to talk about this, and it's it's uh, a difficult. A conversation to get started. When when you're interacting with patients, do you find, now I understand the VA, there seems to be more of an openness, at least in the VA hospital that you are located in. Do you find that men struggle to initially bring that up? Do they dance around the topic? Do they kind of just ask for a prescription? Or has your experience been that men come in and they're pretty um, upfront and forward about what's going on? I may be a bit of an outlier because I ask all men the question, um, regardless of what they're coming in for. They could be coming in for urinary symptoms. And towards the end of the visit, I will you know, say, hey, how are erections? Or, Do you want to talk about this? And you know, I've had plenty of patients be like, you know what? My erections aren't like they were when I was 27, um, but I'm really not bothered by it. And we drop it at that. And I, I always kind of leave the door open and say, look, if this ever becomes a problem in the future, we deal with this all the time. We are more than happy to answer telephone calls about this or get you scheduled to come in and we can have a one on one. Um, in some cases, uh, you know, when a, when one of my patients comes in with their partner, their partner will bring it up. Um, which is actually very helpful because then I can kind of, you know, it, rather than just talk to the patient and have them go home and talk to their partner and then come back, we can kind of start that conversation in the office. But I've found mostly, unless a patient is extremely distressed about this, it takes a little bit of prying to get it out of a patient to get a full kind of sense of their sexual satisfaction. 
Okay, so so Dr. Chamo, I'm wondering if um, you would be comfortable to share your thoughts about what the sex therapy and mental health side can be doing a better job of when it comes to patient education, when it comes to collaborating with the uh, urology or medical side of things, because I know that there certainly are plenty of patient, uh, plenty of gaps for patients between uh, medical to mental health, um, between urology and sex therapy. And I'm always looking to learn um, from the urologist that I interact with. Um, and I know that you have a you know, unique perspective as being again, in the midst of residency with all this information coming down at once and having to organize that. So do you have any thoughts about what we could be doing a better job of, and maybe it's even interacting at the residency level um, to kind of help promote this more holistic approach and this more well-rounded approach to helping men uh, achieve better erections and address these conditions more, more wholesomely? Absolutely. Um, at the residency level, I think that my, you know, kind of the, my colleagues who are getting ready to enter kind of the urology field as fully fledged urologists, I think, you know, for, you know, us, it's a lot about just, you know, making sure that we're aware that there's an issue, um, that, you know, some of these grand rounds that we've had, you know, really getting connected with people on Twitter and looking at the research, I think is kind of the best for us. Um, you know, we can always, you know, improve the questionnaires and make sure that, you know, we're getting the full picture with regards to kind of the, the mental health aspect and some of this other stuff. Um, one of my dreams kind of going forward is to kind of create a pipeline between kind of psychiatry and urology because these, these conditions are so intertwined with one another. Um, but I know that that's several years down the road um, when I've had kind of an opportunity to get my feet uh, under me and get going. Um, I think just from, you know, a, a mental health standpoint, just helping men feel comfortable and, you know, that it's not their fault. Like there's so many different factors that go into this. You know, I, I can assume the first thing that people think is what have I done to deserve this? Like I, I'm ashamed because, I, you know, I can't you know, help please my partner and all this stuff in the way that I would like. And so instead of kind of getting, oh, you know, opening up about it, they, I have a fear that a lot of them just kind of bottle it up inside and, you know, aren't willing to talk about it. And so even getting the conversation going in outside the urology office, I think is one of the best things that we can do for these patients. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciate your uh, ambition of, of, I think while we all we all kind of you know stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us and have done so much to advance the field, I think recognizing that there's always more there's always more that we can be doing and always just trying to like figure out how do we improve that pipeline how how do we help patients get you know to you know, the kind of professionals that they need access the information that they need and um, I I really appreciate that there is um, like a life a life force in you that kind of has that ambition to go out and do that because I think it's so important that you know for our listeners some to know that that um, there are professionals out there that that are really deeply passionate about trying to not only help resolve these issues but to to normalize them to make access to treatment just easier not just in terms of being able to get to the office or being able to get in but but emotionally to really just make this an easier process and to make it just more accessible 
uh, for the men who need these treatments. So I, I really, really appreciate you joining us on this podcast for this episode. Is there any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? I mean, you know, we have some hopefully good technologies on the rise that can help improve this. There's certain uh, there's certain advancements coming out in prosthetics, hopefully soon, that can help to make them a little bit more widespread. Um, there's other treatments that may not require all the crazy, you know, all what patients consider to be the crazy treatments of, you know, injections or the prosthetics. Um, there's some possibly some benefit to shockwave therapy, um, that there's some research being done at some of the bigger centers that may be heading in this direction. But, you know, I think that, you know, like we, like, like we've talked about normalizing a lot of these, you know, issues and starting the conversations, I think are the best. I mean, and I've, I've seen this across the board with kind of all aspects of sexual health and, you know, I'm, I'm a urology nerd through and through. So I, you know, I go digging and I've found some great memoirs, not specifically about erectile dysfunction, but Peroni's disease and penile fractures. And, you know, I look forward to, you know, finishing those books finally, um, but being able to share them and recommend them to my patients, because I think that the the men who have been inspired to write these books like um, Bent But Not Broken or Broken Banana, um, they have some humor behind it because I think that helps them reach a larger audience. But I think, you know, you really get an inside look at how they're feeling during these processes. And it could help patients realize that they're not alone with this. And I think that's really the what you have to get started is that other people have had this and there's ways to go about this. You just need to you need the tools to help you, but you also need to kind of reach out for help and kind of let your urologist know or let your mental health professional know that you are having these issues. Yeah, it's a very, very powerful message. And, and again, this is you know, coming from Dr. Shamwell, who is in the, I would say the next, the next wave, the next generation of upcoming urologists. And uh, men should just know that there are, you know, waves and waves of people out there who are you know, really dedicated to uh, helping to improve the quality of life. So again, Dr. Shamwell, thank you very much. And I really look forward to getting this episode out to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.